Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 21. Plenty of supplies and bio-waste bags had been laid in for the trip. I didn't fear for any of that. There were water bottles and energy bars. Boring, but sufficient for weeks. It probably sounds like I was fatalistic about it all. But that wasn't the case. I was terrified the whole time. Every new status message, every thump or clunk from the internal machinery... Every time I imagined my companion looked ill or fading, I was hammered by a spike of horrible panic. Prior to this, I'd only ever been aboard one ship that had misjumped, and even then it was a minor thing. I'd signed aboard a modular hauler some years back as gunner-slash-hygiene tech. I spent the cruise cleaning freshers and mopping floors. A bug in an update to the navigation software package caused a discrepancy between the intended course and the one that the star jump engine enacted. We'd come out of transdimensional space a week late objective time and nearly 10,000 kilometers off course. Inside, we hadn't known anything was wrong. It seemed like a smooth trip. Everyone aboard was questioned by both orbital control in the star system where we arrived and by route management authority investigators. The bridge crew in particular was detained while a full inquiry was held. For me, the whole thing amounted to little more than an inconvenience. I'd been contracted for one more run with the ship, and that was now canceled. I had to scramble to find another gig right away. But I got one, and never thought much about it after that. Of course, it could have been much worse. The hauler could have disappeared entirely, with the constituent atoms of ship and crew scattered throughout all of reality and eternity. A painless way to go, I assume, but it's the going part that sucks, no matter how it happens, so it was good to have skated over that particular patch of thin ice. This time around... The ice was definitely cracking. There was little doubt in my mind that I was being followed by someone. Or maybe some ones. Real people, not just a computer program. I'd hear them behind me, but when I turned to look, there was no one there. I'd see them out the corner of my eye, but when I glanced over, they'd be someone or something innocuous. I'd feel them there, but they were never there. It only remained to catch them, to make them talk. 
to show up their bosses and corporate overlords as liars and cheats. Management that would make assurances to a wronged investigator on the one hand and treat him like a prime suspect on the other. Because that's what they were doing. They were taking someone who was helping this free jump project as a whole and heaping suspicion and villainy upon him like he was a spy. The fact that I was a spy was immaterial. They didn't know that. So they were treating me badly for no justifiable reason. R&D was a mess. The military takeover of the project involved even more pointless meetings than before and even more miscommunication. It was impossible at this stage to foresee how the project could move forward at all, let alone when. For corporate space to have built this facility and system-wide support network was impressive. For it to have dedicated so many resources, human and material alike, was humbling. And to have actually created working free jump prototypes was just flat-out incredible. But now, they seem to have their hands buried deep in obscure laws, senseless policies, and... Okay, possibly justified paranoia. It was deeply frustrating to watch. It either implied staggering incompetence, which the handshake wasn't especially known for, or conflict behind boardroom doors. It could also represent a compromise. Admin and team had likely been at odds over the nature of the free jumps development. I mean, one branch was dedicated to turning a profit, while the other was about protecting assets and territory. If teams started banging their drum playing up the national security angle after Jaybird's destruction, maybe Admin finally threw them a bone. Mylag Vernier. Sure, I'd had a hand in some of the drama that brought on all these changes, but it could just as easily have been someone else. It could have been some other gunner and some other crew. And if the exchange had gone down any differently, that crew would likely be dead. But such a battle would still have brought on scrutiny from Team in the BOD. Maybe nothing would have altered the outcome. Team had simply been looking for a reason to wade in. That was clear to me now. Jaybird's destruction was merely a pretext, an excuse. It wasn't really on me, then. I wasn't going to own all this chaos. I wasn't going to take responsibility, even in my own head, for what was happening now. Because something large and grand was afoot for this project, which had nothing whatsoever to do with this project. Based on the fact that Brandon and I were set free to continue operating Specsign, the military was still being leashed by the BOD, or at least balked, despite having been given the appearance of free reign. The people here were busy, busy, busy doing nothing much at all. It was fascinating to contemplate, but the picture was too supersized to be seen all in one pass, at least by me. I was feeling a cold shoulder in my sub-department. Seven Newellen and Gaza both seemed happy to have me there, but the others didn't grin when my pudgy form came through the curtain to our workspace. They often frowned when I made suggestions. Maybe they'd been instructed by CPS-08 Casselier to watch me. Maybe the eight had said the same thing to Gaza and Floy, and they were just better at hiding it. Maybe Team decided to leave the weaponry sub-D out of the loop entirely. I didn't know. In fact, it was possible that 
everything consisted of states of being and purposes thereof that I couldn't understand. It was all a blur. It was all far away from where and why I'd started on this road. Not a single person within 50 light years knew me for what I was, except those on Shady Lady, and they didn't like me either. Well, maybe Mavis did, but it was hard to know, and even harder to ask now. Mavis. If I was right about SS1 and SS2 having loaded her up with malware, then I was likely right about her waking up when it was most convenient to them to Chris. Assuming that was correct, getting him what he wanted was the fastest and surest way to get her back on her feet. They couldn't risk trying to escape the system in any other manner than the one we used to arrive. Unless, of course, they could. If maybe they had a plan underway that, once again, I knew nothing about. I was sitting on a bench, halfway home from work, three days after being released from Caesar's Palace. I shook my head to throw off the twists and turns, the blind alleys and dead ends like so many cobwebs. Despite what I believed about my hidden crewmates, I had to decide if what they wanted coincided with what I wanted. If so, I could trust them to do that much. If not... They were a threat. Dieter was working hard and now had the time he needed to get the job done. We could be underway soon. Two weeks? Three at the most? That might mean Mavis would be waking up soon. If she did, the very timing of it would be incriminating. If she didn't, then all my fears and suspicions were unfounded. It would make any ulterior motives of Shady Lady's people merely will-o'-wisps, spontaneous, illusory, and dangerous to follow. I wasn't in the habit of thinking the worst of my fellows, but I wasn't in the habit of lionizing them either. Everyone I worked with got the benefit of the doubt until they gave me reason to think differently. Had John or Stina actually done anything wrong? Had Chris? His priorities were contrary to my own, but they were transparent. Or seemed to be. But what if they weren't? What if I was only meant to think they were? To see him in one light while he operated in another? (sighs) I was getting it on both ends. Because my spec sign work was equally confusing. Someone had screwed up in either R&D or special system control. I'd made no progress on that front. I hadn't met anyone who'd had the authority to order the free jump to attack us. That placed the responsibility higher, and I could get no higher. I was in a development group, ostensibly to offer insight and observational input. Instead... All I did was browbeat younger, hungrier people and make everyone unhappy, including myself. At length, I decided it was time to get back aboard Shady Lady full-time. No, I didn't trust them, most of them, but I trusted that they wanted to leave. If I helped out up there wherever I could, perhaps it could happen faster. 
After the propagators were aboard, I could resign from Specsign and R&D and have the Wonder Twins give me a travel makeover like they had for Dieter. I called the engineer up and told him all this, but he just shook his head in my eye view. Sorry, but I'm gonna need you down there right up to the very last minute in case I need any tools or supplies. None of us can go aboard to manage it. Chris can, I corrected. For a short time, anyway. What makes you think that? He questioned. He pops out for food and stuff. Booze, snacks, what have you. That's where all the wrappers and trash came from. I thought you were bringing them supplies. Why would you think that? I echoed, genuinely puzzled. Chris told me, he replied, frowning. I take it you're in engineering right now. Can they be listening in? Who? John and Stina. Can they be watching you right now through monitors or sensors? No, he stated, creases on his forehead. This section is classified, remember? Nothing like that is installed. They could be intercepting the call, though, from my end. I suppose, if they thought there was a need... You're saying there is? I'm saying that Chris might believe there is, so they might believe it too. He just shook his head, seemingly annoyed at my paranoia and the idea that I might be right. Ejok, I can't think about this right now. I can't think like this. I'm in the middle of a complete star jump strip down. I have to expose the jump array deep inside the chassis so I can uninstall the damaged propagators. If I get it wrong, the array won't reassemble properly and will misjump. Okay, okay. I'll get the parts right now if you want. No, I don't have the room yet. I've got at least three days of work in here and maybe one more getting everything stowed properly and cleaned up. Then I have modifications to make on the engine in order to make the replacement parts fit. After that, you can bring the parts up. It'll be at least a week, maybe more. Will they be safe where you stash them? I asked, worried about that suddenly. We'll just have to hope, unless you have someplace better. But I didn't. I told him to call when he needed me, and rang off. It was all I could do. Exactly nothing. Gaza and I had to wander all over R&D, looking for a place to have a conversation. But everything was full up with laborers, skilled contractors, or guards. We finally ended up in the galliette, hovering by the coffee dispenser. We spoke in whispers, and every time someone came in to get a cup of joe, we hushed up. It must have looked like some kind of office drama in the making, but in point of fact, I was seeking to reduce the drama. It would be better for the sub-D as a whole, and of course I'll still be right here. I know there's been some tension, Ejok, but that's just the nature of the project. I shook my head, but didn't reply because someone came in to look for a mug. I smiled and waited until they were gone. Gaz, 
Those offs are hungry. They don't want some civvy know-it-all messing things up for them. Contributions to the project are all coded to the individual members. I get monetary bonuses, but they get brownie points. They want to move up, and all I'm doing is getting in the way. What you're doing, she objected, is solving problems that, frankly, I thought were unsolvable. Don't back off because of these kids. They'll either step up or they won't. If they do, they'll get the recognition they deserve. If they don't, they'll get the obscurity they deserve. It's how this works. You know that. It's becoming a detriment. If people don't get an equal opportunity to shine, they simply won't. Despite any gains we've had so far, progress will dry up. I mean, there comes a time when the harm I'm doing to the group will outweigh any good. But what do you know about neural control interfacing? I was going to farm that part out. It really takes an expert in the field. I'm not sure there are any, I replied dubiously. I know for a fact that there aren't any commercially available neural interface systems for civilian gunnery. That would mean pulling in team experts who may, but likely won't, have civvy hardware experience. They'll waste time blundering around because of ignorant choices. They'd presume things and screw it all up. I've done that myself from the opposite end. All of you with Miltech experience have kept me, um, uh, honest. If she noticed my hesitation, she didn't show it. So I should put in for an NCI special right now? Yeah, I'd say so. But I want to look at the basics and try to get up to speed. If team can get someone who's halfway decent here, and quickly, then all the better. If not, at least you'll be able to say to Jacob and Floyd that weaponry is working on it. I think we're the only sub-D making any progress at all right now, so they should be impressed. Gaz looked me over quietly as two people came in chattering and raided the snack and coffee machines. She gave me an arched eyebrow until we were alone again, and then said, with the sparest of grins, Floy? Oh, come on, don't, all right? She added nothing, but held on to that bemused smile, pouring herself some tea. It made me feel uncomfortable, so I looked around the little alcove as if there was anything new to see. I was quite surprised to find that there was. Someone had recently installed a tabletop pastry maker in the corner. I wasted no time punching in a chocolate eclair. The device mixed, extruded, and flash-baked the dough while I watched through a dim little window. It cooled the dessert off in only a second or so with a blast of food-safe, super-cold, dry mist. Then it foamed in some cream from a nozzle while applying a thin layer of dark chocolate to the top. With a ding, my pastry was presented on a little disposable plate that had a bright pattern of flowers. Gaza wasn't even done adding sweetener to her cup. Oh yeah, corporate space had the best toys. Well, my boss stated at last, we'll give it a try. But if we need you elsewhere, I'll be right there, I assured. And that was that. With the blessing of my supervisor, I was given access to highly restricted military neural interface technology. Before the shift was through, I was perusing advanced biocontrol systems, wetware hardware connections, and especially emergency reset procedures 
for malfunctioning cyborgs. The ball screamed by my left foot, and I twisted fast to scoop it up. Missed, lost my balance, and flopped over with a howl of laughter. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't hurt. I was having fun. <laughs> Falling down was fun. Ilaki was about ten meters behind and scooped it up. Plug, she cried, running straight for me. I was on all fours, still laughing, and she stepped up onto my back and jumped high. She wasn't a big woman, and her soft shoes meant it didn't hurt. I rolled over just in time to see her spin in the air, legs tucked in, then land gently on the hovering sphere above the deck. She got whistles and cheers from everyone, and I joined in. Indeed, I truly had. Barney asked me to come to practice just as he was leaving the apartment. This, I think, more to be polite than anything else. They were going to break into teams and run through a mock game, he said. I didn't want to be alone suddenly, so I agreed. I swallowed my discomfort, meeting in the pub beforehand, and once again getting the hundred-meter stare from Layden. I stopped at a market along the way and bought a one-piece workout-slash-jumpsuit thing. I borrowed a basket from the court. They had a few dozen older, beat-up ones hanging on pegs for general use. And then ran out onto the court, announcing that I had blue starboard. They indulged me, and I was having a grand old time. Forget what I said about it not being my game, I told them at the pub. Tip seemed a little irritated by my presumption, or maybe I was just reading more into his tone of voice and unusual dearth of funny tales than just a hard day's work, but they all agreed pretty readily. Ilaki ran over to the other side of the plug out of sight momentarily, then reappeared around the far side. She threw the ball down to Fanny, who caught it with a clomp and launched it back over to Green from the opposite way it had come at us. I heard surprised shouts, and in a moment, the little black projectile zipped around the inside circumference of the court unmolested, coming back for a point. Such a scoring pitch was called a full orbit in game parlance. I was on my feet by now and used the smack to stop the ball. Scooping it up from a stationary state actually wasn't a dead simple operation, so I struggled a bit before picking it up with the other hand and placing it in my basket. A legal move, but terribly amateurish. Thinking a repeat of the scoring pitch might be unexpected, I flipped the basket up and Elaki caught the ball in midair. She spun around and tossed it to Fanny again, who, in turn, launched it as before after two fast steps in a slightly different direction. Oh, come on, Barney howled, and so did the others. Paul, the chunky guy with marital problems, whistled in a distinctive razzing way that smackball fans always used when they were upset with a call or play. The ball dutifully dashed around again, and this time with Lily playing for the greens, chasing it. She reached low, legs pistoning madly just as it came to the line, 
then stumbled and rolled over into our side. Two points to blue, one for the ball and one for the penalty. Clear, Ilaki called directly over me, then did a running jump into the air, tumbling to dive straight down, feet first, once she passed into the gravity field of the lower court. She miscalculated, though, and came down sideways, while I hadn't been fast enough to even get out of the way. She dropped like rain, and the two of us collapsed in a heap. Fanny had, in the meantime, caught and relaunched the ball, her back to us, so she didn't see that her teammates weren't in position to follow up. Someone on the other side deflected the projectile hard, and it buzzed back from an oblique angle. It hit me square in the lumbar region as I lay on my side, and I squeaked as might a pinched dolphin. My smothering teammate had already been laughing from the fumbled drop-down, and my high-pitched complaint only turned into a full-on guffaw. The ball had hurt, but not too bad, just like the collision. Nonetheless, the two accidents happening together made Barney stop gameplay long enough to order Elaki and me to take a break. She helped her fat landing pad to his feet, and we limped over to the lift at the equator. It sat flush to the deck until we called for it aloud, then the AI extruded a circular handrail up from the floor, while a hatch opened, revealing a round platform within. We entered the ring, and the elevator sank through the floor as the hatch reclosed above our heads. This was the only spot in the court that exactly corresponded to the direction of apparent gravity on the station. A combination lounge and locker room space was under the court. It had several Tri-D units displaying the action up above from various angles. Thanks for the catch, the short woman offered when we sat down. She upon a plush sofa to one side, I on a matching chair. Such as it was, I laughed, filling a tall disposable cup with ice-cold water that was right there within reach of my seat. I handed it to her, and she accepted gratefully. I filled one for myself and sat back with a groan. Barney had been right to send us off. I'd pulled about a dozen muscles. You'll want a hot shower and a nerve block, Ilaki advised. Hey, are you doing anything later on? I don't know. I was thinking of going into work, actually. I have a lot of reading to do. Why? What's up? A friend of mine is shipping home tomorrow, and we're throwing him a party. Should be going all night. Nothing fancy, but there's food and music. Wanna come? She looked at me frankly, with a rosebud smile. Her small, athletic build, accentuated by a vermilion pixie cut and elfin features. Her dark brown skin was glistening, and she looked very cute at that moment. Sounds like fun. I replied with a grin, cementing that this was, well and truly, a day of surprises. The session wrapped up soon. After showering and applying the suggested nerve block strip, I bid the other vipers good shift and followed Alaki down a service corridor, then over to an airlock in an obscure section of the station. The party was being held in a large exterior fuel pod that had been recently emptied for a refitting scheduled for the following week. Fully scrubbed clean, it was climate-controlled 
and had Atmo connections linked in from the station for the sake of workers who would be doing the refit. An extensible plastic tunnel attached to the airlock provided access. I noticed that the lock sensors had been disabled from this side, like how Dieter and John had done it. Pedestrian control would have no idea it was opening and closing. Something similar must have been affected upon the station monitoring devices in the companionway as well, since revelers were coming and going all night. The tube remained retracted as a matter of course, folded up accordion-style to the airlock, until it was called for remotely by anyone in the tank wishing to leave. This was a bit slow and clunky, but it kept the noise in check by isolating the bacchanal by vacuum. Loud revels were generally frowned upon by station administrators because people sometimes overdid it and couldn't make it into work for their next shift, to say nothing of how disruptive it was for the neighbors. Quiet, sedate gatherings were more in keeping with the sensibilities of the handshake, or its more conservative management types anyway, so they actively discouraged anything that was less controlled. <laughs> well, they would have hated this thing. The tank, once we were inside, proved to be packed with colored lights, holograms writhing in time to pounding music, and people doing the same. I lost sight of a Lockie almost immediately, though I'd been right behind her. People I didn't know and people I thought I'd seen in the companionways and on the streets, or maybe on the trams, the offices, the workshops, the meeting rooms, the whatever, all danced and bobbed around me to a puka ska rhythm so penetrating and slamming it was like getting tackled over and over. Sound traps hung from the curved ceiling, or whatever you call it inside a fuel tank, killing echoes and dampening the worst of the distorted noise. It was still batteringly loud though, and I could barely tell what was sound and what was sight with the lights and hollows flashing and dazzling in perfect time to the beat. Oppressive bodies constrained me all around, pushing, leaning, brushing by, shouting unintelligibly to one another, or maybe to me. It was overwhelming. I made my way forward, hoping to reach a wall and put it to my back. Instead, I came across a table piled high with drink and food dispensers. There were a lot of machines, actually, a few of them expensive looking. Someone planning the party must have worked for a distributor on station. There was a tall fellow with vaguely Asiatic features standing behind one of the liquor fountains. The machine's service panel was open, and he poked around the guts with a small tool. The guy wore a focused headlamp to see what he was doing, despite all the spinning, sparkling party lights. Is it broken? I shouted to him. He looked up but hadn't caught my words. I yelled again, and this time he nodded. One of the mini-pumps. I knew I should have brought a service kit tonight. How did you get all this stuff in here? He grinned and stabbed the air in the direction of the extensible tube. By hand, one by one. Did you use a flat car to get them to the airlock? Robot, delivery drone, 
Nobody ever notices them coming and going. Had one drop these units off in a supply room right near the lock. Just a few at a time over the last week. Worked like a charm. That sounded like a clever idea, and I told him so. He grinned. Listen, I called. I have a private package I need to move from one closet to another. Do you think that would work for me? Is it big? Sort of, and heavy. He considered it, taking a drink from a cup at his elbow, evidently pleased to dispense illicit advice. You need a red drone, not the yellow or green ones. It doesn't work with them. What department are you in? R&D. Okay, then you have it easy. R&D drones have priority. Wait till somebody else is sending one out on a job. Then stand in its way. Tell it, task, update, override, priority gold. What was that? I had my ear up close to him by now. His breath smelled like alcoholic fruit punch. He repeated it. Tell the robot what to get, where to get it, and where to bring it. Every closet has an index number. You need to use those. Enable the job with task update complete. The drone will go ahead and make your delivery, then return to its normal queue. There is a record of the job, but it's appended to the last person's ID who gave it a task, not to yours. And if there aren't any delivery problems, no one even looks at the log. I thanked him for the info and offered to help with the repair work, but he didn't need any. I repeated my thanks at the top of my voice, then barreled slowly back through the crowd. This was good info, and it made me happy. But the pounding noise and spraying lights were swamping the nerve block, and I had to get out. A hand grabbed my arm from behind. I turned to tell Alaki I wanted to leave, but it wasn't her. At first I didn't recognize the grinning young woman. She wore a shiny sleeveless blouse and glowing hair dye with matching party makeup. Then she laughed at my confusion with a distinctive bray that cut through the pounding beat like a splash of ice water. Floy! I'm glad you're here. I don't know anybody. I don't either. Half these people are team, she informed me, still grinning and clearly feeling good from some sort of chemical assist. I think I outrank them all. Nobody's even noticed me yet. She put a wavering finger to her lips, then honked again in mirth. Is that good or bad? I shouted. Good for now. Been bad! Oh, really bad! But her grin implied that she didn't care, or didn't want to. I didn't want to either. This hidden rave was very much not my scene. I didn't even have a scene, really, but if I'd been looking for one, I sure wouldn't have started here. Noise, strobe lights, bodies, booze, wreck drugs, noise, noise, noise! Time to leave. I had to think about delivery drones, and really, I had to get some sleep. The practice session was rolling back on me hard. Yet, 
CPS 07, Floyeen Nwellen was certainly in no frame of mind to make career-impacting decisions. Responsible wreck drug use wasn't illegal, but if she'd popped a few happy times or mood lifters before walking in, it would have put her in a fun, fuzzy state before she could really judge the situation. Legal or no, getting high and partying with hundreds of subordinates would not impress her superiors, not on this space station. Poor timing on her part, and maybe worse judgment, but who hasn't been there before? So no, this wasn't fun, nor was anything here my business. It really shouldn't have been. You want to get out of here? I called. Still grinning, still laughing, but now with tears starting down her face in a miasmic flow of radioactive eye paint, she nodded vigorously and caught up my arm. I'm having a very bad night! She supplied toothily, giggling like a turkey's gobble. I kind of picked up on that. Let's get you home. We pushed and wedged our way through, but Floy stopped halfway and got down on all fours. One of her dangerous-looking stilettos had come off. She was crawling the floor between dozens of stomping feet in search of it, laughing and crying the whole time. I used my fat man profile to plunge through the crowd until I could pick her up under the shoulders. Thereafter, I just shoved her forward like a piece of furniture. She limped along ridiculously on her one tall shoe and would have fallen over with every other step if I hadn't been holding her up. Ilaki was camped near the exit hatch, possibly ever since we'd gotten separated. The place was too full for her to have seen us coming. We just barreled forward, and there she was with a few friends I didn't know. The smackballer was startled to see us and cast an arched glance at Floyeen. Ejok, there you are. Wait, are you leaving? I found a sick co-worker, I shouted back. I'm sick, Floy echoed, face a glowing mess, grin bright, coughing giggles quite audible this close up. Everyone always says so. I can't just leave her here. Home, James, my boss commanded imperiously, pointing at the door with a beringed finger. Then she laughed some more and swept a lockie into a sudden hug, which startled everyone. I'll see you at the pub tomorrow, okay? I called over my shoulder while moving Floy forward through the hatch. But if the elfin woman replied, I didn't hear it. The Seven couldn't give me a sensible answer about where her quarters were located, so I looked up CPS 07 Floyeen Newellen in the first station directory we came to. It listed some shared bunking in a team facility half the circumference of the station away. That would have made getting her home in this state, and unnoticed, impossible. Instead, I steered her toward my place, hoping Barney would be a good sport. We took the tram. Floy was loud and senseless, and, as I'd hoped, people did their best to ignore her. This is my boyfriend, she announced, grabbing me around the neck with one arm possessively. She said this to an older woman in the next seat over, who just smiled at us nervously and looked away. 
Are you my boyfriend? She whispered into my ear, somehow spitting when she did it. I'm your friend, I assured, wiping out my ear canal with a finger. I'll take it, she shouted, still close, and then brayed sharply. The older woman changed seats. Quite surprisingly, Barney wasn't home when we got to the apartment. It was now late third shift, which usually found him snoring in his room. But, though his smackball gear was here, indicating that he'd come home after practice, the large man himself was nowhere to be found. What a place! It's so big! Mine is small! Team makes us live small! She really needed a shower, but a shower would have been inappropriate and very difficult to wrangle just then. I guided her to my room and to the narrow, plush mattress in the corner. She stumbled into it, her one shoe tripping her up. She screeched as she went down, then made mule noises, face buried in a pillow. She rolled onto her back, still laughing, smearing makeup on the sheets and threw her legs wide. Come to me, my prince. I'm on the couch tonight, I stated flatly, closing those legs and slinging them over so she could stretch out. I wrestled off the treacherous shoe with a remarkable amount of difficulty, as if it was determined to remain a plague on the night. Floyd chortled the whole time with small nasal hoots. When I stood up, she reached out for my hand, but missed. No, 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 I don't want to be alone, Ejok. Few people do, I confirmed, drawing up a blanket to her chin. The tears had started again, this time without any laughter. They were heavy and flowing, though she didn't sob once. It was like she didn't even notice. Work is going to be so awkward tomorrow. She warned as I turned to leave. I paused at the door to reply, but she was already asleep. I wasn't laying there for even an hour, but already had a terrible crick in my neck from the one-two punch of Alaki's attack from above and having curled up on the mushy couch cushions. The nerve block had crapped out at some point. I was awake now because a message notice was flashing in my retinals. It was a call from Shady Lady. I answered audio only via the bone cons, subvocalizing. It was Chris and he sounded excited. We just picked up another of those strange transmissions. John and Stina have managed a triangulation. If you move fast, you might be able to get a look at them. Really? Right now? I was so tired I spoke acidly and without thinking. It was a tone of voice that usually got me into trouble, but he didn't seem to care. Chop, chop, come on. If someone else is spying here, UH wants to know about it. We need evidence that's a clause in the contract. I muttered something unprofessional, but got to my feet. I was still in the same clothes, stripping to my undies with Floy in the other room. It seemed weird. Is it still transmitting? Yeah, right now. Hurry. Where? In answer, he popped a floor map up into my eye view, 
with a set of directions marked out as a dotted red line. The interface with my ring was jittery and would likely add to my headache if I looked at it too long. I dismissed the map, then set off through the station at a lope. I know where that is, I remarked. Spoke Plaza. It's by Pillar 5 near some elevator banks to the hub. What is that exactly, a storage room? No, looks like a public fresher. Okay, I'll let you know when I get there. I cut the line, but immediately made another call. Brandon, I greeted hurriedly when he picked up voice only. I've gotten a tip that we might have a spy aboard the station. What? Clearly only half awake, he coughed in a phlegmy manner, then had me repeat it. What kind of spy? Maybe one connected to our investigation, I don't know, but whoever it is, they're making contact with someone outside the station right at this moment. You want in? Of course. Where do we meet? I mentioned Spoke Plaza, and he said he'd be there in just a few minutes. Then he asked where I'd heard about it. I can't say, so don't ask. Someone in R&D? A reliable source? Possibly, yeah. It's worth a look either way, but checking it out alone seemed like a bad idea. He agreed. We should have back up ourselves, Ejok. I'm calling in team. That'll make Mailbrot smile. But if it turns out to be nothing, I started to protest. Then it's nothing. No harm done. We all go home. He put me on hold while he made the call. I flagged down an automated tick-tick cab and gave it directions. I didn't take too many cabs because they cost money while the trams were free. I was rarely in that much of a hurry, but this situation felt pretty rare. The machine buzzed along, swerving around people and other vehicles. It even rolled by the tram, I having apparently just missed it. That would have been a five-minute wait for the next one. Brand came back on the line after a moment. Something's up. They can't raise a unit of team guards assigned to that location. They're scrambling tactical operations. Watch yourself and stay clear. TACOPS doesn't fool around. I came upon Pillar 5 suddenly. The cab reduced speed as it entered Spoke Plaza, then pulled over with a jerk. It announced the destination and associated charge for the ride that would be deducted from my hard credit account. Its calm, friendly voice faded behind as I stalked away. On the Wayfarer line of multipurpose space stations, the wide ring that made up the bulk of the vessel was connected to its fat hub through six long supporting pillars. At the base of each, where it met the ring, was a large open space designed to mitigate traffic problems around the elevators. These spaces housed shopping centers, industrial neighborhoods, and parks. Pillar 5 came down upon Spoke Plaza. Essentially a public park, it sported ornamental vegetation, charming benches, and two matching water fountains, and even a small playground for kids, though I'd seen very few children on Mylag Vernier. The area outside the park was fairly jumbled with small kiosks and numerous tiny administrative annexes. There were also maintenance facilities and a couple of warehouse-sized storerooms. 
I didn't see any public freshers right off, but did find another of the station directories mounted on a pedestal in the center. I queried for the closest toilets, and it showed me three locations around the plaza. I called Chris, up on the ship. I'm here, but a team patrol assigned to this location has gone silent. They're sending in more right now and looking for trouble. Which fresher is it? 21J. That means nothing to me. What's it near? Uh, there's an office marked welding and bonding supervisor right next to it. Wait, the signal just stopped. Whoever it is might be on the move. I cut the line when I spied Brandon jumping out of a personal roller across the park. I waved to him. The place had enough people coming and going to be a distraction. I spotted the welding supervisor's office just as someone wearing a full-body clean suit stepped out of a small door right next to it. A big guy. He had on a filter mask and didn't look our way. Actually, the mask looked to be pulled down over his chin, which was clever since it still adequately hid his features without him being fully covered up in public for no apparent reason. He didn't seem to have caught on to being followed. I nodded at the retreating form to Brandon, who was still across the way. He spotted the man turning down a side alley that led over to Port Road, and we both set off. A large black roller buzzed by, bearing an illuminated TACOPS logo on the side, flashing amber and red. Brandon tried to flag them down, but they were already breaking. I was closer to the alley than he and got there first. I looked around the corner. The stocky figure was just walking away, easy as you please. I waited for my boss as he jogged over. Can you grab some of those guys? I asked, pointing at the black roller. An armed squad was piling out. They won't listen to me. They're concerned about their own. But I'll call for more help as we go. He set off slowly. The man ahead of us was now about 20 meters off and had never once looked back. Other people were strolling through the alleyway as well, some chatting, some trudging along, all of them oblivious to this. Brand muttered into his wrist for several moments, listened to a silent reply, then moved his head close to mine as we walked. They found two soldiers dead in a fresher back there. Oh, man. Just keep this guy in sight and let the shoot-em-ups take him down. Right. A second unit is moving to cut him off. Yeah, there they are now, he said, as a brace of armored figures holding stubby firearms turned the corner ahead of the big, clean-suited man. Several people were between him and the soldiers, so they didn't spot him immediately. He must have seen them, though, because he slowed to a stop, then turned right around and started walking back our way. His head was down and hidden behind the low hood and filter mask. The man took about ten steps, then seemed to notice us as well, because his stride changed to smaller, faster steps. He was tall and kind of husky. He didn't alter pace again, but just kept moving, eyes to the deck. When the guy was about five meters away, Brandon stepped out ahead to intercept. Excuse me, sir, but... The figure's hand sort of flicked up, 
A flame or spark sort of jetted out from a dark thing in his gloved palm. Brandon's head sort of exploded. Blood and other stuff and Brand himself flew back and I went down under his twitching form. Then there was more shooting and lots of shouts and someone else fell down right there next to me. I turned to look and the man in the clean suit was staring directly into my eyes. Except it wasn't a man or even a stranger. I pushed Brandon away and clumsily scrambled upright, the horror of recognition lending desperate energy. Layden's wide back was a mess of blood and flesh and fabric, and her vague lips were working, though I could barely hear the words. She looked sad and surprised all at once, and her breath gurgled out from a mouth with no clear delineation. This, this, at yet, this, this, this. Her expression never changed, even as the words and her life faded away. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. The party songs are called Viralata 2001 Fool Ska by Diego Morosino and three tunes by the band Respiro Nocivo called Non Ti Las Quiero Mai, Los Tres Pecados, and Andando Lontano. And all of those songs can be found on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.